Listener Production. Dr. Daniel Amen is known as one of America's most popular psychiatrists, whose patients include Justin Bieber, Megan Trainer, Miley Cyrus, Bella Hadid, as well as many others. Dr. Amen has spent much of his career studying correlations between brain health and mental illness. His work focusing on discovering new ways in which the brain is shaped by environment, trauma, and health. My conversation today with Dr. Amen shines a light on the daily habits you can do that can help you improve your brain and mental health, how to prevent dementia and Alzheimer's, and the questions to ask yourself when you have a negative thought. It's foundational for me to ask all of my patients, what do you want? Relationships, what kind of relationships do you want to have? What do you want for work or school? What do you want for your money? What do you want for your physical, emotional, and spiritual health? I'm Sarah Grimberg, and this is A Life of Greatness. Through my years of studying and researching the connection between human behaviour, personal growth and transformation, I have discovered the keys to unlocking greatness within others. In this podcast, I share stories and experiences from my own teachings, along with conversations with inspiring guests to help you learn the simple tips, habits, practices and strategies to cultivate an extraordinary existence. Dr. Amen is a 12-time New York Times best-selling author of books including Change Your Brain, Change Your Life, The End of Mental Illness, Healing ADD, and his newest book, Raising Mentally Strong Kids. This conversation is not just about living well. It's an analysis of the habits and practices that produce what we seek most, happiness. My hope is that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did recording it. Dr. Amen, you've seen more brain scans than most people in the world. You're a certified psychiatrist and physician. What brought your interest in the brain? When I was 18, Vietnam was still going on and I became an infantry medic. That's where my love of medicine was born. But about a year into being an army medic, I realized I didn't like being shot at. It was not for me. And I got retrained as an x-ray technician and developed a passion for medical imaging. As our professors used to say, how do you know unless you look? And then in 1975, I got out of the army. I finished college, went to medical school. So in 1979, I fell in love with psychiatry, the only medical profession that never looks at the organ it treats. But because of my imaging background, I'm like, we should be looking at the brain. And so that seed was planted. So about 10 years later, when I started looking at the brain, it changed everything that I do. I stopped thinking of psychiatric disorders as mental illnesses and began to see them as brain health challenges. If you want to feel happier, more relaxed, more focused, have better relationships, better control over your temper, you have to really look at and then optimize the physical functioning of the brain. What's the difference between the brain and the mind? The brain creates the mind, right? If you damage the brain, you're going to damage the mind. And if we see the brain literally as a creation of the mind, because when the brain stops working, the mind stops working, we'll do a better job of taking care of the physical functioning of the brain. Now, I think of it sort of like, Computers, hardware, software, network connections. So the hardware is the physical functioning of the brain. The software, what a lot of people think of the mind, is you have to train the brain to help you 
rather than hurt you. Because the brain's actually lazy. It's always conserving energy. And once you allow your brain to do something, social media, for example, or negative news, or being angry when you're frustrated, once you allow that to happen, it's going to continue that unless you retrain it. I do a lot of work in helping people train their their minds and I find it so unbelievably interesting, the subconscious mind, the conscious mind, uh, thought patterns. And, you know, I want you to talk to this. There was obviously people thought to the age of, I think it was in our 20s, that the brain was hard set and then now with neuroscience we realise that we can rewire the brain till the day we die if we do the work on it. I want to talk to you about that because... That can be tricky for a lot of people. And I want you to talk to the difference between the conscious mind and the subconscious mind and then how we work on rewiring our brain to be able to allow it to function in a way that will bring us joy in life and, you know, our brain or our mind doesn't become a prison for us. So I like to think of the conscious mind It's about 10% of what the brain is doing. 90% is the subconscious mind. And the subconscious mind is what you do automatically without forethought, without thinking. It's all of the habits you have trained yourself to do over time. And it's all the successes and traumas that have actually been stored in your brain, right? In the physical functioning of your brain. And your conscious mind can only do one thing at a time. Your subconscious mind can do many things at a time. So if you think of elite athletes, when they do these incredible physical Acts. I treat a pole vaulter, Alicia Newman. It's public knowledge, and she's the Canadian champion and amazing. And if you watch her body when she's pole vaulting, it's spectacular. But she's not thinking about all those things she's doing. She's trained her body to do those. And often my job with her is to get her mind out of the way of what she's doing. So her subconscious can do it automatically. I think in our society, we're not very good at training either the conscious or subconscious minds, but I believe they can both be trained with uh, certain strategies and remember hardware and software first want to have a healthy brain then everything is easier and then not believe every stupid thing you think (laughs) i think it's absolutely essential i call it killing the ants the automatic negative thoughts that steal your happiness. And I think subconscious conscious negativity bias is one of the leading causes of depression, of anxiety, and also chronic pain. Because when you have a negative thought, your body subconsciously reacts to every thought you have. So I do a word association test with my patients. I hook them up to muscle tension, heart rate, sweat gland activity, breathing, and I'll come up with a list of 20 words and go mother. And if mother's a good concept, like my mother for me is a good concept for me, Um, my hands get warmer, they get drier, my muscles relax, my breathing gets deeper and slower, and it happens immediately. Now, if you said father, 
which is a more stressful concept for me. My hands get colder, my muscles tighten, my heart rate variability goes down, and my breathing becomes faster and shallower. And it happens immediately, and I'm not aware that that's going on. But if you, like so many people today, have these negative thoughts, just imagine how your body's physiology is just twisting you in a harmful way. And so learning to direct your mind in a healthy way is really important. So, for example, what a lot of us struggle with is ruminating thoughts and ruminating over something negative, not positive. And you can feel like, I'll take myself, for example, I was ruminating over a situation and waiting for a reply to something and every day didn't get one, didn't get one. So I'd come out of meditation every morning and look at my phone because the person's overseas thinking maybe overnight I would have gotten something, nothing. And so I can feel the physiology of my body like get upset and I've, you know, come out of beautiful meditation, heart filled with love. And then I go into sadness and I think like, don't do that. Like I'm completely conscious. So that's the first thing. And I'm trying to switch my mind to think of something that brings me joy. But I wonder if you have any strategies because I'm definitely not the first person to be affected by a situation and having those kind of negative thoughts come into your head. So the first thing I would want you to do is write it down. Because when you write down the thought, you get it out of your head. So I think that's really important. And then I have nine different types of ants, all or nothing ants, things are all good or all bad, just the negative ants where you have all these great things in life, but you're focused on what's wrong, less than ants where you're comparing yourself to others in a negative way, fortune telling, which is the seed, that's the ant that drives anxiety mind reading, where you're predicting what you know, what somebody else is thinking, even though they haven't told you, <laughs> guilt beating, labeling, where you label yourself or someone else with a negative term, blame the worst uh, aunt, where you're blaming other people for how your life is turning out. So write down the thought, identify the species, and then interrogate the thought. And then is it absolutely true? So I got these questions from my friend Byron Katie. Is it absolutely true? And it's like, well, you don't know, right? How does that thought make you feel, act, and the outcome of the thought? Yeah. So the thought makes you feel small and unimportant, and you might act... Uh, anxious. Um, but the outcome of all negative thoughts is suffering. Totally. And uh, the next question is, how would you feel if you didn't have that thought? Mm. Happy? How would you act? Motivated? And the outcome is peace. But my favorite part of this is take the original thought, flip it to the opposite, and then just see if you can find evidence of yeah. it. And then you meditate on the turnaround mm. of the bad thought. The real seed, though, I, I like this turnaround in three ways, yeah. opposite self and others. And so the opposite is they do care about me. Do I have any evidence of that? Other is, do I care about them? Well, maybe less so if they're not responding. <laughs> And do I care about me? Yeah, as soon as you say that, like, you know, do you have evidence that they care, which I have so much evidence of. And that already makes me feel so much better because there's something about, you said, writing it down or with us talking it out now where you know what you're thinking is irrational, but your mind gets so caught up in that. But when we're speaking about it, I feel lighter. <laughs> I'm so happy. And, and that's the sort of mental discipline. When the pandemic started, I wrote this down, March 10th, 2020. 
Uh, mental hygiene is just as important as washing your hands. Yeah. We have to learn to disinfect our thoughts. Talking about the subconscious mind, a lot of that is obviously wired and we can be changed as we're talking about when we're young. You've got your new book, Raising Mentally Strong Kids. That is the age where this is so important, this work. And I wonder if we're wanting kids to thrive, how do we bring them up to allow those very early years, say to the age of seven, to be ones that we're exposing them to things that will allow them to have, you know, a good start in life. I have a book for children called um, Captain Snout and the Superpower Questions. Captain Snout's an anteater, got to get rid of the ants, where we teach children how to not believe everything they think. And if you want to raise mentally strong children, you have to be mentally strong and model it. That's so important. And then not solve all of their problems. Parents love their children so much, they don't want their children to suffer or be frustrated. And that's a mistake. Because if you solve all of their problems, you will crush their self-esteem. Because self-esteem actually comes from being competent in solving problems. But too often, because of the society we live in, parents are quick to protect and not want their kids to suffer. So if you grew up in my house and you forgot your lunch, no one's bringing it to school. Because you only have to forget it twice to never forget it again. Or if you forgot your homework, no one's bringing it to school. And, or if you forgot a sweater on a cold day, or you argued with me that you don't need a sweater on a cold I'm like, it's on you, but I'm not bringing it to school. And the most competent people I know have the best self-esteem because they have self-efficacy. Does that make sense? Yeah. But we live in this society of helicopter parents that, do way too much and steal self-esteem from their kids. Well, it's obviously, you know, that resilience piece. Like I know this is something very minor, but for example, my son, he's about to turn 11. He will always be like, mom, can you get me a glass of water or can you make me this or do this? And it's stuff that he's very competent at. And I said, look, can I tell you, I would absolutely love to do that for you, but... I want you to be able to do it yourself. So you go and cut that mango for yourself or get that glass of water. And I give him the example of like, I grew up in a family that was so loving and so sweet. My mom literally did everything for us. So when I left home in my 20s, I didn't even know how to use a washing machine. So, you know, it was one of those things where allowing them to learn how to do things and not doing everything for them. Or as you said, you know, if they don't have a jumper, well, you know, they can be a little cold that day. It's building that resilience within them that allows them to then thrive later on. Yeah, I think it's a very important strategy to raise mentally strong kids. But, you know, the same principles apply to adults. Mm. And the principles in the book, it starts with, well, what do you want? You know, it's foundational for me to ask all of my patients, what do you want? Relationships. What kind of relationships do you want to have? What do you want for work or school? What do you want for your money? What do you want for your physical, emotional, and spiritual health? So it's laser focus. You have to tell your brain, what do you want? Mm. And then every day you just ask yourself, is my behavior getting me what I want? So if I want to raise independent children, then I need to work on helping them be competent. Mm. And then it's about bonding. You have no influence without connection. You want to be important to other people. You have to spend time with them and you have to listen. So rather too many parents talk over 
children, you've probably seen that, or they tell children how to think. And it's just death to a relationship. Mm. The most important exercise that has paid the biggest dividends with families over the years is something I call special time. 20 minutes a day, do something with the child the child wants to do. And during that time, no commands, no questions, no directions. It's like just be with them, which bonds you. And then it's, so what are the rules? I think we all should have rules for ourselves. And we should, families should have rules. You know, society has rules and they're sort of not kidding. If you break the law, you end up in jail. I think it's good for families to have guidelines. Like in mine, it's tell the truth. Put things away you take out. Um, do what mom and dad say the first time. I'm not a big fan of letting kids you know, making parents say things five or 10 times because your chances of losing control go way up. Now, with that, I go, as your parents, we want to hear your opinion. More than twice constitutes arguing. (laughs) And then my favorite of all the rules is we treat each other with respect. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, if that's a rule, I need to do that with my partner. I need to do that with my children. I don't know if you've seen the book, The No Asshole Rule. I love that book so much. And I have that at work. And I actually have it in my life, The No Asshole Rule. So I don't get to be one and neither do you. So it's, it's about mutual respect. And then notice what you like more than what you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, too many people live with a bully in their head. I have this one patient I just dearly love. And he said, I would look for happiness. But the bully, just like the bully who would take my lunch money at school, takes it from me. And the bully lives inside me. So I try to work with my patients to be good parents, good coaches, good teachers to themselves. Mm-hmm. And they all, what do they all have in common? They notice what you do right, and they teach you when you could be better. We're bad parents, bad teachers, bad coaches. Notice what you do wrong, and they never let you forget it. Mm. And so how are you going to treat yourself? Are you going to look at your life and see how far you've come? which is amazing for most people, or are you going to look at your life and see what you don't have? And then you'll be miserable. Obviously the morning and the evening is a time that is very important. What should we be saying to ourselves, you know, when we wake up and also like, is there something that we should be doing before we go to bed? Well, I am very ritualistic because I find my life works better that way. When I wake up in the morning, I say to myself, today is going to be a great day. And then I look forward to whatever I'm looking forward to. But I remind myself, today is going to be a great day. And when I go to bed, and this is probably the most important exercise I do for myself personally, I go on a little treasure hunt. So I say a prayer And then I go, what went well today? And then I start at the beginning of my day, go hour by hour, just recalling what I did and what I liked about it. And I've done that now for 12 years, maybe. And like you, I'm busy and I have all these cool things happen. And I just, my day goes on. That's a time for me to celebrate. And even I remember about three and a half years ago, my dad died. And it was a terrible day. One of the worst days of my adult life. And when my head hit the pillow, I said a prayer. And then I went, what went well today? Remember, I said, the brain is lazy. What you do 
is what you're going to do. You know, and part of my mind went, really? We're going to do that today? Uh, but it's because it's my habit. I went immediately to an interaction between my mother and the police officer. I'd actually been training the Newport Beach Police Department at the time. So I knew the officer, and it was a very tender, funny interaction between them. And then I thought of the dozens of texts I got that day from my friends, people who love me, love my dad. And then I just thought about holding his hand. It was so soft before the mortuary took him away. And then I went to sleep. And it didn't mean I didn't grieve. I still do. Um, it didn't mean I didn't love him. Of course I do. But I'm managing my mind rather than allowing my emotions to manage me. Mm. So important. You spoke at the start about having a healthy brain. Can you talk to us a bit about what a healthy brain is and how we get a healthy brain? So at Amen Clinics, I have 11 clinics in the States, we look at the brain. We do a study called Brain Spect Imaging, and Spect looks at blood flow and activity. It looks at how the brain works. And I've come to realize brain health is really three big strategies. One is a term I created called brain envy. It's love your brain. I always say Freud was wrong. Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem. I've not seen it once in 40 years. The only organ in your body where size really does matter is your brain. Learn to love your brain. And nobody cares about their brain. Why? Because you can't see it. You can see the wrinkles in your skin or the fat around your belly. You can do something when you're unhappy with it. But because most people never look at their brains, they have no idea that it's the most important part of them. So care about your brain. And then stop doing things that hurt it. And you just have to know the list. Like alcohol is not a health food. Marijuana is not innocuous. Being overweight is a disaster for brain function. I published three studies that show as your weight goes up, the size and function of your brain goes down. Really? Working so much where you're not sleeping, very bad for the brain. So you just have to know the list. When my daughter was in second grade, I went to her classroom and I wrote 20 things on the board. And then I said, just separate these. You know, 10 things are good for the brain and 10 things are bad for the brain. And they got 95 right. The only thing they missed was orange juice, which they put in the good category when it really belongs in the bad category because it's too much sugar. And so, so most people sort of have a sense that hitting a soccer ball with your head is bad for the brain. Eating sugar is bad for the brain. So brain envy, got to care, avoid things that hurt it, and then do things that help it. And probably the biggest surprise is coordination exercises. So like tennis or table tennis or pickleball, racket sports, people who play racket sports live longer than everybody else because it activates a part of the brain called the cerebellum in the back bottom part of the brain that has half the brain's neurons. So doing coordination exercises, juggling would be another one really good for your brain. So if you love your brain, avoid things that hurt it, do things that help it, you're going to keep your brain healthy for a much longer period of time. I want to talk a bit about nutrition because I don't think people realize that that they think it has an effect more on our body than our brain. Why are the foods that we eat so important for brain health and what sort of foods are good for the brain? And, you know, you mentioned sugar, but what other things are not? 
So your brain is 2% of your body's weight, but uses 20 to 30% of the calories you consume. And so food is very important to brain health. Sugar, bad fats, not all fats, but uh, fake fats in particular. So if you want to think of like the worst food, it would be donuts, right? They have cheap oils, bad fat, sugar, and flour. I'm not a fan of gluten because it actually turns down activity in the cerebellum. I think that's so interesting. If you eat gluten, you become less coordinated. Um, And I'm not sure how it is in Australia, but the additives that they put in U.S. wheat, uh, not great for brain health, for sure. I know it's different in Europe, where they don't allow a lot of toxins in the food supply. Really good foods for the brain, omega-3 fatty acids. So fish, as long as your mercury levels are not high, and I think it's important to test those. Um, They did a study at the Mayo Clinic, and they looked at people who had a healthy fat-based diet. So fish, avocados, healthy oils, nuts, seeds, 42% less risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. People who primarily ate a fat-based diet. People who had a simple carbohydrate-based diet, bread, pasta, potatoes, rice, fruit juice, sugar, 400% increased risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And so if you think of it, Foods with omega-3 fatty acids, with fiber, colorful fruits and vegetables, more vegetables than fruit, and foods that do not raise the blood sugar in your body. So it's called the glycemic index. And simple things, like if you take almond milk, for example, there's sweetened almond milk and unsweetened. Unsweetened almond milk has no impact on your blood sugar, where sweetened almond milk spikes it. And so if you have a choice, and most people have choices, right? go with the thing that has not been sweetened. Mm. I want to ask, there's a lot of different opinions on this. Is it better to have like good full fat milk or skim milk? Well, if you're going to have milk, I'm not a huge fan of milk. Here in the United States, there are cows are raised with hormones and antibiotics. And um, I think milk is really good for baby cows, but not baby people. Mm. Um, I would go with the full fat yeah. milk, right? Fat's not the enemy. Yes. It's sugar that's the enemy. And in the 1960s in the U.S., the sugar companies paid two scientists to write summary papers demonizing fat. Mm. And we've not gotten over that. I know. uh, Because people still think cholesterol is the cause of heart disease. And it's just not true. I want to talk about alcohol and illicit drugs. So say like, you know, your cocaine, um, ecstasy, all that realm. It's so prevalent. I remember when I was, you know, I think I just finished school And there was a girl that I kind of knew and I remember one night she went out and took illicit drugs and she went into a sort of psychosis after that. I have no idea where she is now. It was literally one night. And I want you to talk to that because I know how important the brain is and the mind and I just don't think people realise what they're playing with when they go and do things like that. It takes your brain offline. Yeah. You don't ever want anything in your life to take your brain offline. Alcohol is not a health food. It increases the risk of seven different types of cancer. Any alcohol increases that risk. The American Cancer Society came out against any alcohol because of that. And my wife is a nurse. And why does she put alcohol on your skin before she gives you a shot? It's a disinfectant. 
And during the pandemic, Jim Beam, the whiskey company, actually turned their plants into hand sanitizer plants. Why would you drink a disinfectant? Think about that. When there are 100 trillion bugs in your gut that make neurotransmitters, digest your food, detoxify your body, have your immune system, they control about 60% of your immune system. Why would you pour disinfectant into that and damage the microbiome? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Plus, if you go, okay, as a psychiatrist, you know, are there overriding themes of who comes to see you? And people have had head injuries, clearly an overriding theme, and people who drink or use drugs because they don't act right. And when you don't act right, your life isn't right. I know that you have a lot of very high-profile Hollywood stars that have seen your work and you know that, I mean, it's very prevalent in those kind of scenes. I mean, you don't have to say obviously any names, but how have you seen the brain be affected by that sort of drug use? Well, prematurely ages it. They get into trouble. And it's true of everybody, not just some of the celebrities I've seen. It ages their brain. They engage in bad behavior. For them, it can be worldwide shame, right? Fame has its own vulnerabilities for sure, worldwide shame, and they make bad decisions. And the problem with the brain is if you say something when you're drunk um, or you've had too much to drink, your partner might remember that for the rest of their lives. It's like you can't take it back. And people say drunk words are sober thoughts. And I actually don't believe that because we all have crazy thoughts that nobody should ever hear. The problem is, is when you drink or do drugs, they get out. And that can permanently damage your relationship with your children, for example. Uh, I do a lot of trauma work and, you know, something one of their parents said when they were intoxicated, when they're five, still reverberates in that person when they're 45. Mm. I heard you talk about drip feeding serotonin and how, you know, people who are used to big bursts of serotonin and a lot who are in the public eye, that can actually become a negative thing. Can you talk to us about that? Well, you know, when I think of fame and neurotransmitters, I think more of dopamine, that they're all involved. Yeah. But dopamine becomes depleted and they just feel sad and they feel flat and they don't know it's because their dopamine's been depleted, but then they start drinking more using drugs or engage in sexual behavior that is not helpful for them. And what they're doing is creating a further reduction in dopamine. And I often say, let's drip dopamine, don't dump it, right? If you just did a concert for 30,000 people, that just dumped all of your dopamine. Don't now go do drugs and play video games and have sex with four other people because you're going to wake up depressed. And then you're going to have to do drugs, not because you want to get high, just so you don't want to kill yourself. And so if someone does a huge concert, it's like put days in between travel and get in a routine of what you eat and how you sleep and protect your dopamine centers. So interesting. I want to talk about the rise in Alzheimer's and dementia. And for example, my grandfather died many years ago of Alzheimer's, but he also was involved in the Holocaust. And that's obviously horrendously traumatic. What are the correlations between trauma and those brain diseases? Why are they more prevalent now? So Alzheimer's is expected to triple between now and 2050. Why? One, we're living longer. If you think, what's the greatest risk 
for Alzheimer's, it's age. Chronic stress, think about the Holocaust, the worst kind of chronic stress, kills cells in the hippocampus, one of the major memory centers in the brain. But having Alzheimer's in your family or having something like the Holocaust in a grandparent, you're going to end up with some anxiety from that probably because that changed his genes and that change in his genes can actually get passed down through generations. So there's a fascinating book about this called It Didn't Start With You uh, by Mark Wallum. Yeah, like the epigenetics. Yeah, I, I like that so much because if you know it, then there are things you can do about it. But I wrote a book and it's in most of my books, but in Memory Rescue, I have this idea if you want to keep your brain healthy or rescue it, you have to prevent or treat the 11 major risk factors that steal your mind. And I totally believe we can prevent Alzheimer's by preventing these 11 risk factors. And I have an acronym called Bright Minds. So B is for blood flow. You want to do whatever you can to keep your blood flow healthy. And that's why exercise is so important and not drinking, using marijuana or smoking cigarettes because those decrease blood flow. I think blood flow is so important. It's the number one brain imaging predictor of Alzheimer's disease, low blood flow. R is retirement and aging. When you stop learning, your brain starts dying. I is inflammation. Sugar is pro-inflammatory. G is genetic. So if you have it in your family, genes only load the gun. It's what you do and what happens to you that pulls the trigger. So I think we think about genetics wrong. It's like I have obesity and heart disease in my family, but I'm not overweight and I do not have heart disease. Why? Every day of my life, I'm on an obesity, heart disease prevention program. Every day of your life, you should be on an Alzheimer's prevention program. The H is for head trauma, major cause of dementia. And so you shouldn't let your kids hit soccer balls with their head or play tackle football or engage in behaviors that increase their risk of concussions. T is toxins, drugs and alcohol for sure, but also things like mold or general anesthesia, heavy metals like mercury can all be toxic to the brain. The M is for mental health issues. Depression doubles the risk of Alzheimer's in women, quadruples it in men. Now, it doesn't mean you should go take an antidepressant, but you should be on a depression prevention program, which includes things like exercise and not believing every stupid thing you think. And of all the supplements, my favorite is saffron because it's been found in 24 randomized controlled trials to be equally effective to boost your mood as antidepressants. The second eye is immunity and infections. We're just coming out of a pandemic. There are things called long COVID that is going to increase the risk of dementia, I'm fairly certain about that. N is neurohormones, getting your hormones balanced. D is diabetes. We said as your weight goes up, the size of your brain goes down and sleep. And so I know that's a lot. So, but people can read my work and get more details on it. But I believe it's preventable that I don't have to have it when I'm 85 or 90 if I love my brain and I'm doing the things to help it. Obviously, you are a psychiatrist, as we spoke about at the start. That's what you studied. I would want to talk about medication for anxiety and depression. What are your thoughts on that? How does it affect the brain long term? So I'm not a fan of anti-anxiety medications like benzos because they're addictive. And once you start them, people don't want to stop them. Is it also a bit of a Band-Aid effect if you're not doing any other work? Yes, especially for the anxiety 
ones. Uh, now, sometimes it's so bad and people do all the psychological things we teach them. I then will go to magnesium and GABA and ashwagandha. So theanine from green tea. I'll try the natural things first. And if those don't work, I may actually use anti-seizure medicines like gabapentin. I don't use benzos because they just have too many risks. Depression medicine is never the first thing I think about. But, you know, in all of my work, I talk about, well, why do you have depression? Too often, someone goes to the doctor and say, I'm sad, I can't stop crying. And they give you a prescription. And I'm like, well, why are you sad? And why can't you stop crying? How's your thyroid? Do you have pancreatic cancer? I mean, there are all sorts of causes that someone should hunt down first and then teach people not to believe every stupid thing they think. Now, if you do all of those things and it doesn't work, then the natural things like saffron, curcumin, omega-3 fatty acids, SAMI, St. John's Wort, are options, and they all have fewer side effects than medication. But if they don't work, then it's like, well, what type of depression do you have? Do you have the type where you're over-focused and a worrier? And probably it's a serotonin deficit, and an SSRI would be helpful. Or is it more you can't think and you have low energy than something more stimulating? like Wilbutrin. But that's not what happens in day-to-day clinical psychiatric practice. Almost everybody starts with an SSRI, which I just think is insane because it works for some people and is a disaster for others. I want to talk about ADHD because that's obviously extremely prevalent these days. Why suddenly is it so prevalent? How do you know if you've got ADHD or a child has it? And what do we do about it? It's real. And left untreated, it can cause real problems. We have more of it because people who have ADD have more children than people who don't have ADD. And over time, it's not the survival of the fittest. It's survival of who procreates the most. So you have to think about that. And then our society with low-quality food, digital addictions is escalating the dopamine deficit disorder. There are clearly things you can do to make ADD worse, but there are also things you can do to make it better, like diet, exercise, nutritional support, especially omega-3 fatty acids. Everybody has ADD days. It's like, no, you didn't have an ADD. You're not ADD if you're just three days out of 30 you have a shorter attention span. Um, But if 23 days out of 30, you have a short attention span, we should probably get assessed. Short attention span, distractibility, restlessness, impulse control, disorganization, procrastination, those tend to be the hallmark symptoms. And you see it in your family. You have come from ADD people pretty much. What do we do about ADD? How do we treat it? Well, I think the first thing you do is you recognize it, improve someone's diet, get them to exercise, give them omega-3 fatty acid, and then see. And if you do all the natural things, I wrote a book called Healing ADD. It's like it's not one thing. I talk mm. about how it's seven different things. So it's know your type. People can take a free online test, addtypetest.com, and go, well, which of the seven types or combination of types I might have? Why is pornography so bad for the brain? Because it wears out the dopamine centers of the brain. Um, and the big problem with pornography is small children are being exposed to it. So people who have developing brains and it's going to significantly deplete dopamine and negatively impact a person's sexual development, sexual relationships. 
if you see these ideal scenarios and that's not what you experience, you're going to be anxious and upset. And very few people live up to the lights, the camera and the action. Mm. What's the best advice that you have ever been given? The 1840-60 rule, which says when you're 18, you worry about what everybody thinks about you. When you're 40, you don't give a damn what anybody thinks about you. When you're 60, you realize nobody's been thinking about you at all. Even as a public figure, they're not really thinking about me. They're thinking about themselves. And it's like, stop caring what other people think. Do you have a favorite saying or prayer or mantra? Um, I love the prayer of St. Francis. I'm not actually sure he wrote it, but I love that prayer. And uh, it's public knowledge. I've been Miley Cyrus's doctor for a long time. My favorite song is Flowers, or a new song that came out last year. What is a life of greatness to you? I think a life of greatness is being appreciative and making a difference to make the world a better place. This has been an unbelievably fascinating conversation. When I was doing research for you, I was like, I can't wait to speak to this man. He is a wealth of knowledge, which you have been. So thank you so much for the conversation today. Thank you, Sarah. What a joy to spend time with you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Your Life Greatly, where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my manifestation course and meditations, head to the shop tab at sarahgrimberg.com or this week's episode show notes to find a link. If you love what you heard, we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. Listener.